This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. I want us to take a moment to imagine ourselves in these hypothetical situations. Imagine uh, yourself at work, and you're killing it. You're just doing a great job. Uh, All your assignments, all your responsibilities, you're doing well. You're performing at a high level, uh, and things are going well for you. Uh, So much so, your boss is pulling you aside giving you recognition for your work, encouraging you. Maybe you guys go out to dinner and become a little bit of friendly, and you just feel like things are going great. And then one day, a position opens up, a chance for you to get promoted. And the day comes, and you're for sure, oh, it's got to be me. I got the most amount of years here. I'm doing well in my work. I got it in with my boss. It's definitely going to be me. But instead, the company chooses to pick someone who just entered a year ago who has less experience than you. And for whatever reason, may it be nepotism, favoritism, or just office politics, they ended up choosing someone else. Betrayal. It would taste, leave a pretty bitter taste in your mouth. Or another scenario is, imagine you're with a high school friend. You've been friends for decades, and all of a sudden, one day, This person who you used to trust and confide in and and share everything with, phone calls stop. They stop liking your Instagram. And all of a sudden, they're talking behind your back to your friends. They're gossiping, sharing these false lies about you. Or perhaps even worse, maybe one day, your girlfriend or boyfriend shows up and say, oh, it's not you, it's me. But then later, you find out they're talking to somebody else the day after you guys broke up. Betrayal is a painful experience in our human lives. The taste is extremely bitter, and we've all experienced it in one form or another. Maybe these hypothetical situations are true for you, and if not, I'm sure something has popped into your mind of a time when you were betrayed by someone you loved or trusted, someone that was close to you. Today, in Luke's passage, we have one of the most infamous stories of betrayal known in history. Today, we pick back up, as I mentioned, in the middle of Jesus' Passion Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion. And we began a couple chapters ago with Jesus triumphantly riding into Jerusalem on a colt, And the people are shouting praises, worshiping God, saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're receiving Jesus as their king. Things are looking good. And Jesus then goes to the temple. He proceeds to cleanse it from corruption and evil. 
You see him um, engaging in these discourse with the religious leaders who are actually trying to entrap him with these um, questions. And you see Jesus with such authority and wisdom evade every single one of them. Amongst all these stories, Jesus is also giving sober warnings about what's to come. His death, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And all of a sudden, now in chapter 2, you see a sudden shift in tone. It got real, really ominous. You can feel the change in the atmosphere. And if you didn't know how things turned out for Jesus, and you're reading this story for the first time, it'd be the part where you'd be holding your breath on the edge of your seat, wondering what is going to happen next. And as we look at the drama that is unfolding before us today, we're going to look at two things in this passage. We're going to work through our passage through two points. The betrayer and the betrayed. The betrayer and the betrayed. So let's begin with the betrayer. Look down with me to verses 1 and 2 again, and I'll read that for us. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So a little bit of context of what's going on. Luke is giving us a sense of the irony of the situation here. He mentions that it's during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, during the Passover. It's a feast that commemorates God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Families were having special meals together. It was singing. There was offering thanks. There was worshiping of God. There were sacrifices being given. It was a celebration of life given to Israel. But the irony that's oozing in this passage is, as it is a feast to celebrate life, at the same time, the religious leaders who should be leading this nation in this time, they're plotting to take away life. But why? Well, for several reasons that have been culminating until now. Jesus was coming in and preaching that the religious leaders, that their hearts were not right before God, that they did not understand the law, they didn't understand God's word, and what they've made of the temple and everything was a mockery. He was shaking their entire religious system. And so the Pharisees seeing this, they're afraid. They're afraid of losing power, authority, influence, and their affluence as well. And now the final straw had come. Jesus came into town riding on a donkey. The people are proclaiming him the king of the Jews, so now they're at a standstill. They can either bend the knee, recognize that Jesus is king, or the other option, take him out. And so there, there they are right now. They've come to this decision that they are going to come and conspire to kill Jesus. And these two groups, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priests, they typically did not get along with each other. They're very power-hungry, and they're always in competition. But here, you see them coming together, linking arms for a common enemy. But there was a problem. They were scared of the people. They were full of fear. Again, this was the time of the Passover, and we had tons of Jews from all over the land that would come and visit, that would make the pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem to worship and celebrate this feast. And so many Jews would come from far away that the Romans would actually place extra soldiers in the city because it would be overpopulated. 
And if the, the religious leaders knew that if they tried to take and seize Jesus in public in front of everybody, it could spark a riot and things would get way out of hand. So they become conniving. And they start plotting in the dark how they would take away Jesus. But notice these words. It says, seeking how to put him to death. How to put him to death. Not if we should put him to death. It was how we are to put him to death. Their hearts had grown so cold that they had already had it in their minds and hearts to find a way to kill Jesus. And to their relief and joy, here enters Judas. Let's look down to verses 3 to 6. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. All of a sudden, Judas enters and answers their prayers. They found a way to get rid of Jesus. Judas is perhaps one of the most reviled names in history, right? He's known as the betrayer. It's interesting as I was doing some research in, in secular lists and religious lists, uh, when you look up like the, you know, the top 10 betrayals, top 20 betrayals in history, Judas is almost on every single one of them. And the thing is, Judas, though we might have this perception of him, he was one of the 12. He was an apostle. He was called by Jesus to walk with him. And for three years he did. Judas saw the miracles. He heard the teachings. He ate with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. Can you imagine? Jesus was, uh, Judas was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. Right before his eyes, he's witnessing this. He witnessed Jesus calm the storm. He saw Peter walking on water. He saw Jesus bring Lazarus from the dead. It was up close and personal. As part of Jesus' ministry. And yet we see him committing this treacherous act to betray Jesus. Why? Now scholars um, have two schools of thought on why uh, Judas had done this. What was his motivation? And the most common one we hear is that Judas loved money. He was greedy. And there is reason for this argument that we do see in Scripture. John 12 records the story of Mary taking this expensive ointment extremely expensive ointment, and, and wipes Jesus' feet with it and with her hair. And Judas is indignant about this fact, and he speaks up and says something, and this is uh, what happens. It says this in John 12, 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So clearly, one of the characteristics of Judas was he loved money. He was greedy for money to the point where he would even steal. But another school of thought on why Judas might have betrayed Jesus was because of disappointment. Disappointment with Jesus. You see, Judas' intention for falling with Jesus was not actually genuine. A common uh, misunderstanding amongst the Jewish people at that time 
and the Jewish culture and the teachings was the Messiah that God would send would become some political national savior. That their Messiah would come and free them from Roman oppression and make them a great nation again. And perhaps this is what Judas was holding on to when he decided to leave his home, his family, his profession, to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Basically, he was trying to follow Jesus because he wanted to be in the limelight. When he became Messiah, he would be next to the one who had authority and influence and power. But, but as they were drawing nearer to the cross, as he was listening to Jesus talk about destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, him giving his own life, he might have been thinking in his head, this is not what I signed up for. And as soon as his tough got going, he took the exit ramp. He found a way to betray, he found a way to leave and actually profit from it as well. And Pastor Tim Keller makes an interesting observation here on this idea. If you look at the disciples, how do they tend to usually behave? They're actually pretty brazen, a little bit arrogant. They're very slow to admit their mistakes as well. When Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times, Peter doesn't go, oh, oh, please help me. What do I do? No, he says, me? Me? No. No way. I'm Peter. I'm not going to deny you. You see other stories where the disciples are arguing amongst each other, saying, arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to sit on the right and left of Jesus. And so their typical responses, their, their typical um, the personalities was that they're slow to be honest with themselves. They're a little bit arrogant. But yet, when Jesus goes to the disciples and says, I, I'm, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples, all of them, it says in Scripture, they didn't go, oh, it's not me. But all of them at this point were saying, is it me, Jesus? Is it me? Because I think all of them had in their hearts a little bit of this fear of what was going on before the cross. They were also thinking to a certain extent, this is not what I signed up for. This is not why I'm following Jesus. So now they're a little bit scared. Saying, okay, this actually could be me. It might be me who's betraying Jesus. They were sorrowful. They were afraid. They did not understand what was going on. And so they were aware of their potential to betray Jesus. And so we see Judas has these two possible motives for betraying Jesus. Judas has for betraying Jesus. It's either he loved money, it was an idol of his, it was above Jesus, or second, he bailed on Jesus when things got difficult. When following Jesus was good for him, he's right there along my side. But when it was difficult, he bailed. Now, let's put a bookmark here, a mental bookmark in here as we want to go back to this idea. But we have to introduce one more character that enters into the drama today, and that is Satan. Luke includes in this account of the betrayal that Satan entered Judas. It's only in Luke that we see this. And we have to think about what this actually means. Satan had now found a means to continue his attack on Jesus, and it was through Judas. Now, before we can say, oh, you know what, we should let Judas off the hook because uh, clearly he wasn't making his own decisions. It was the Satan who was influencing him. What we need to understand is that the devil made me do it is not a valid excuse. The devil cannot make you do anything against your will. 
He can tempt you. He can try to influence you, deceive you, and do whatever it is in his power to make you sin. But ultimately, ultimately, when we sin, it is us who are willing to do it. Satan was a part of this plan, yes, but he found a partner who was just as willing to turn his back on Jesus. So he is not exonerated for his actions. He was responsible for making that choice. Now going back to Judas, we may think that Judas is a treacherous man, the worst of all sorts. But if we take a moment to just look into our hearts and evaluate our lives we just might see a little bit of Judas in ourselves. We might not be a fool on Judas because Scripture does say that Judas never had true faith. He was never a believer. He was never predestined by God. But the tendency of his heart and his actions reflect what we do even as believers. He treasured Jesus more than money more than Jesus. He had idols that he placed before Jesus. And when he was following Jesus, when it was easy, he was there. But when things got difficult, he gave up. Doesn't it sound a little bit like our walk with Jesus? We have things in our lives that we treasure greatly, that are given to us from God. Perhaps our career, our family. Maybe we put a little bit more to importance on those things where Jesus becomes second. Or when we go through difficult times in life, you know, when the troubles start creeping in, when following Jesus doesn't fit your life goals and your plan, when following Jesus will cost you, what do we tend to do? We bail. We don't submit to his will, but rather we go and find our own way. It sounds a lot like our walk with God. It sounds a lot like my walk with God as well. All of us struggle with betraying Jesus. Not in the sense of fully betraying him like Judas, but in the sense that our hearts are going back and forth between following God and betraying God. It's interesting to note that Judas, in many ways, looked like a Christian. In many ways, he looked like a genuine Christian. He surrounded himself with Jesus and his disciples, his followers, probably walked the walk, he talked the talk, but ultimately he would deny him. So how can we know if we are a full-on Judas or just struggling with our sinful nature? Well, we have to remember that Judas failed to grasp and receive in his life the grace that Jesus came to bring. He did not see it. He missed it. And so after he realizes what he does and just how treacherous it was, he was stricken with guilt, and he ends up taking his own life. There was no repentance. There was no turning to God. He just simply despaired. And so the difference between a full-on Judas and a Christian is this. It's the act of repentance. When there is no repentance in our lives, it's a rejection of God's grace. A heart that has not been touched and transformed by the gospel does not seek repentance. But a life that has, a Christian life that has tasted that grace, it is marked with repentance. There's a turning back to God when we are convicted and we realize our sin. 
when we realize we've betrayed and fallen off the path, when we've strayed for idols, when we realize that in our hearts, there is a going back to God's grace. We will have moments in our lives as followers of Christ where we'll see a little bit of Judas in us. But the difference is, is that we don't fall into despair, but we turn to him and trust in him. You know, each passing year of following Jesus, the more I realize the magnitude of my fallenness, of my brokenness. Um, part of my story was that I, I grew up in the church up until high school, and then 20s, I left and basically had the whole live fast, die young type of mentality, hedonist, doing whatever I pleased. And in his grace, Christ called me back to me, humbled me, and, and helped me see his grace once again uh, later in my life. And when that happened, I, I could see this amazing transformation in my life. That old pattern of life that I used to live, it was clear night and day. Like God would work in my heart to get rid of all those things. And what, what, after I, I had this transformation in my life, uh, I, and I saw the differences in the way I used to live and, and the now cleaned up life that I, I had now, um, I found myself falling into a, a spiritual, what would you call it, a, a spiritual unawareness of my sin, a spiritual unawareness of my sin. I saw, whoa, those days were bad, but now I'm living a pretty good life. You could say it's a little bit of self-righteousness. And um, it was amplified when I went into seminary. So now I have my life together. I'm doing good. I'm studying for the Lord. I'm about to go into ministry, and I thought I was really sanctified. Now, all those problems with anger, impatience, the problems of envy, I thought, you know, I, I had it done away with pretty well. And I, I've moved on to the next level of Christianity. I had gotten my stuff together. But then um, there are things in life that come along, new situations, new jobs, particularly marriage or children. These things, these challenges, these new things come into your life, and um, what they tend to do is really reveal a lot of what's sitting dormantly in your heart. So although I thought I was preparing to be a, a pastor and I was you know, a pretty good Christian, as I got married and I faced the challenges, the real challenges of, you know, two becoming one, building a home, I saw a lot of things that were already in my heart that were just sitting there silently. A little bit more of that anger came out that I thought I had done away with. A little more of that impatience that, I, you know, I thought I was a pretty patient person, but it turns out I wasn't. And so there was another process of repentance, turning back to God, trusting in Christ and what he's done for me. And then the kids came along. Guess what? Another round of seeing my brokenness and fallenness with the challenges that comes with raising kids. And this past week in particular, if I can just be honest and, and just share with you, it was an incredibly challenging week for me. And I found myself at a level of anger and grumbling and impatience that I haven't seen myself in in at least a decade. And it absolutely broke me. It's like, how could I get to this place? And as I'm sitting there thinking about it, 
I had two routes that I could take. There's a route of basically not going to repentance and just blaming my situation, blaming the person or the thing in my life that had caused me to do this, which is basically pride and arrogance, thinking, you know, I'm not responsible for my actions, so therefore I don't need to repent. Or the other route that I'm tempted to take is despair. Just to be like, how could I possibly have gotten to this point? How could I call myself a follower of Jesus? How could I call myself a pastor when this very evil anger and impatience has come up in my life? Both responses, both responses, we're inclined to take one or the other when we see ourselves fall seriously into a sin. But Christian, remember, God's grace that you experienced in your life when you came to know the gospel and you felt the freedom of the forgiveness of your sins that first day, that grace doesn't end there. It is provided and given to you day after day. In fact, it abounds all the more. When sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You fight against blaming your situation. You fight against not repenting. You fight against despair and falling into guilt. But you run and you turn to Christ. You find forgiveness in that. You experience his grace. And you find the freedom that is offered to you in Christ. We may be like Judas. We may struggle to follow him. We may jump off that ship when things get hard. But when your heart is convicted, to come back to him. Run to him. Run to him. Don't fall into despair. Don't try to justify your sin. But just throw yourself at his feet. Because he came to die for you. Receive the grace that he has come to give you. And next, we're going to uh, look on to the second point of our sermon, the betrayed, the betrayed. And Jesus said himself to Jerusalem, uh, we read today's passage, and it sounds like Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to be taken down. You know, Satan had his, made his move now to bring Jesus down. In Luke chapter 4, we see Satan making his first attempt. What does he do? When Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast, Satan comes and brings these temptations upon Jesus, and he fails. And this is what it says in Luke 4, 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan wasn't done. He was still trying to bring Jesus, and now that opportune time had come. But little did he know, as he was influencing Judas to betray, Judah, uh, betray Jesus, he was playing into what God had sovereignly planned and providentially worked for our salvation. He was being used by God for this plan of redemption. Nothing in this treacherous plot that we read here today was outside of God's foreknowledge. God was not reacting or coming up with a plan to adjust to what had just happened here, but everything was according to his plan. Nothing was out of his control. And as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the Passion Week, 
It was not ultimately a time for him to be taken down, but for him to eventually be taken up, to give glory to the Father, to purchase forgiveness and redemption for his people through his blood. Christ knew full well when he marched toward Jerusalem what was to come. He knew that the man he walked with and brought into his inner circle would eventually sell him out and betray him, but yet he still took that march. And what's remarkable is that even when Jesus was betrayed by Judas in the garden, as we'll see later, do you know how Jesus addresses Judas? He calls him my friend. He says, my friend, come what you have come, do what you have come to do. Let that sink in for a moment. The man that he walked with for three years, the man that was by his side through it all, he had given him up for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver is not an arbitrary number, but it's actually a fulfillment of a prophecy that we see in the book of Zechariah. There's an episode in Zechariah's life where he would work as a shepherd watching over a flock. And shepherds at that time were considered servants as slaves. And as uh, Zechariah finishes his job, he goes to the owners and he says, um, give me my pay however much you think that you owe me. And then those owners paid him 30 pieces of silver. And this amount of 30 pieces of silver is actually a fixed amount a master would have to pay for the accidental death of a slave. And in other words, it's not that much. It's actually an insulting amount that, to place on someone's life. But yet we see that's what Jesus' life was worth to Judas. Judas not only fulfills this prophecy, but he shows that Jesus is no more valuable to him and a slave. And imagine the sting of betrayal that Christ felt when Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And yet, and yet, Jesus calls him friend. The sting of betrayal, though, is not the only thing that Judas' actions would bring to Jesus. As a result of that betrayal, Jesus would then be arrested falsely accused and tried and sentenced to death. Be mocked, disgraced, beaten, and put on a cross. And as he's going through all of this, not only was he abandoned by Judas, but he'd be abandoned by others that were close to him. He'd be abandoned by all the people who welcomed him into the city as king. And he would be abandoned by his father as well. He went on that cross bearing our sin, meaning he had to take the full wrath of God that should have been given to us. And as the man who had once been in infinite love and infinite joy with the Father, he was separated and he was abandoned by his Father. And he does this so that we are forgiven so that we can be called friend, more than a friend, that we could be called children of God. And there is no more powerful, no more fierce love that melts our hearts and transforms our lives than what Christ did for us and showed us on that cross. In the beginning, I mentioned some hypotheticals of betrayal, instances where you might have 
suffered something in your life. And I'm sure many of us have our stories that we can share. And as we thought about it, that person probably popped up into our minds. And this is the point where we have to think about, well, this person who has betrayed me, can I forgive them? Can I call them friend, just as Christ called Judas friend? Because Christ set the bar for us. He set the example. It is a high bar, yes. It's a difficult bar to reach. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's a bar that we don't even want to strive to aim for. But for us as Christians, we're called to love and forgive even our enemies, even the ones who have betrayed us. Even those ones that we've loved and cared about, who've betrayed our trust, even when those wounds run incredibly deep, we are called to love, to forgive. But it's impossible on our own. It's only really through the grasping and hanging on to the love and grace that was shown to you in Christ that it is remotely possible, that he endured betrayal and the cross so that we would be Received by him. When you dig deeper and begin to live in that grace of how of that he showed us, that love is contagious and it begins to spread and melt in your heart. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story of a sinful woman that came to Jesus uh, as Jesus was visiting the Pharisee's house having dinner. And I want you to imagine Jesus and a bunch of Jewish leaders. Uh, having a meal together in the private home of a Pharisee. And all of a sudden, this woman, who the Bible describes no more than as woman of the city who was a sinner. That's what she was known for in town. She was a sinner. And the scholars uh, guess that she either was a prostitute or she was an adulterer, but she was someone who carried great shame in society. But yet she came into this meeting, into this dinner, And what she proceeded to do was she also threw herself at Jesus' feet. And she anointed them. And she wept and wiped his feet with her hair. And a Pharisee came and saw this. And he said, if Jesus knew who this woman really was and what she had done, there's no way Jesus would be allowing her to touch his feet. And I want to read for us Jesus' response to this Pharisee. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning around the woman, he said to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she had anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little loves little. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. 
This woman was painfully aware of her sin, and she threw herself at Jesus' feet upon his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And it overflowed her heart to love. And it overflowed to the people around her. And that's how it works for us. When we dig in and we live in the grace that God has given us, which involves a recognition of our sin, but not just a recognition, but a turning to him to receive that grace and receive his forgiveness. As you fix yourself in this lifestyle of the Christian, of going to God and trusting in Christ, what you see is your heart will grow. Your heart will melt away. And that bitterness and the anger and the resentment you have towards those who have betrayed you, it will slowly melt away. If you're hanging on to anger, resentment, bitterness to those who have betrayed you, keep running to Christ. Keep living in the grace that he has shown you and he has given you. And trust that it will change your heart. It's only there and it's only with that can we extend the same love that Jesus showed Judas. Let us pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.